As we continue in our worship this evening, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. And we'll pick up our reading there at verse 13. It's Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, starting at verse 13. Hear once again the word of our God. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye? That I am. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Amen. And may the Lord add to us this evening the blessing of his word. Friend, I don't think this needs to be said, but of course we live in a generation that does not like to think about authority. And so coming to the subject that we are this evening, this of course is not going to raise the interest of the world. But even for preachers, this is not necessarily a subject one warns to. I'm reminded of Chrysostom, he says this, for those who are really called, he says, I have not said that it is a terrible thing to desire the work of the ministry, but only the authority and power. In other words, he says those who are genuinely called to the work of the ministry really desire the work itself, but, but they don't relish in the authority and power of it. It's not the thing they aspire to most of all. And so often it's the case that the issue of ecclesiastical or church authority is something we don't hear much about. But as we take up this text, friend, I hope that we'll see that this is not really a case of, uh, of men urging authority or their place in a particular society, but it really is urging the interest of Christ. And that's why I want us to consider it this evening as we take up Matthew 16. I want you to go with me in your mind just for a moment to a cave, or really to the face of the cave. It's a cliff face, first of all, that's quite large. And in front of that cliff, there are three structures lying right up against the cliff wall itself. As you're looking at these three structures around the cliff, the one on the furthest right is a pillared artifice, looking very much like a Greek temple. It's dedicated to Caesar Augustus. Here, all manner of Roman citizens in Palestine gather to offer their incense to the effigy of Augustus. 
Augustus had built this, of course, in honor. Oh, sorry, Herod had built this, of course, in honor of Caesar Augustus. And so all of those who were part of the Roman province came there to relish in Caesar, to pay homage to Caesar, to offer incense to Caesar and seek Caesar's blessing. And then as you leave that artifice and you come to the center and to the one on your left, you'll find again two other temple-like structures. One, one built to honor Pan, a Greek god, and the other named the Gates of Hades. You see, friend, this is Caesarea Philippi. This is Herod's great monument that he had constructed, of course, to relish in the kingdom of man, to relish in the Roman Empire, to relish in Caesar's power and authority. And so all manner of Romans gathered to recognize the glory and grandeur of Rome. But then as you come to those other two temples, as you find altars placed in front of each of them, you find all manner of pagans gathered to worship the vanities of the nations, to worship Pan, to offer incense to Hades, to see somehow that there in that cliff face they were looking at the thoroughfare of the afterlife, the kingdom of darkness itself. And strikingly, friend, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords takes his disciples there to Caesarea Philippi to ask them a very basic question. He begins by saying to them, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? In the bustle of these pagan worshippers, in the din of all of their sacrificing and in all of their praising their vanities, Christ asks this very simple question. He asks public opinion. What really is it that the people think of me? I who am the Son of Man. And of course they give that survey. But then that question leads to another. That famous question. He doesn't ask, who do others say that I am anymore? He comes to his disciples. And he asks, whom do you say that I am? You who have walked with me. You who have walked with me closely. With whom I shared lodging. You with whom I eat. You who follow me from one end of the province to the other. Not like those crowds that follow me at a distance. Who are always looking for food and for healing. But you who are closest to me. Whom do you say that I am? And then of course friend that question leads to Peter's great confession. Oh it's a striking confession isn't it? Here all you have all of the nations gathered in Palestine. All of the falsehoods of paganism. As it were made monuments. Before the eyes of the one who is the king of kings and his disciples. Well, friend, can you imagine being a pagan worshiper there and overhearing Peter say these words? Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Not of Pan, not of Hades, and not of the gods of the nations. Oh, and all oh, by the way, not of Caesar Augustus. You are the son of the living God. Well, friends, the striking thing, isn't it, that the monuments to the kingdom of man and the kingdom of darkness heard these words. Thou art the son of the living God. The confession leads then 
to a statement about construction. You have it here in verse 17. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, that rock being Peter's confession, this rock I will build my church, and strikingly note this, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Those gates that were made monuments in front of the world, Christ says they cannot prevail against that which I am building. I will construct my church, my kingdom in the face of Rome, in the face of Caesar Augustus and his empire, in the face of the kingdom of darkness, I will build my church, and this church will not fall. Caesar will fall. Rome will fall. My kingdom won't. And then from construction, you have Christ give us in the ninth verse, nineteenth verse rather, a statement of confirmment. He continues, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. A question that leads to a confession. That tells us something then of the construction of this kingdom, the church of Jesus Christ. And then a confirmment of authority from he who is king over all. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Friend, we are looking these evenings at the church of Jesus Christ. And our interest, of course, is to see God's view of the church. Our interest is not, of course, to ask the question of the world. The world has many tasks and many ideas of how we define the church. But no, we're looking at the church of Jesus Christ, as we said from the onset, as it is the household of God on earth. We're looking then at the visible, what we call the visible Catholic church. A church comprised of all of those who profess faith with their children, faith in this Christ, who are built upon this rock, this confession. This confession found in verse 18 of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. And then, friend, we're considering ourselves as part of this church, a particular church, a society of these professing believers who are gathered together to be under the ordinances of Christ's establishment, gathered to be under His discipline, gathered not just to have these things enacted for us, but gathered that we might know His presence in them. A particular church, part of this visible Catholic body. That's our purpose in these evenings. And as we come to Matthew 16, that purpose is furthered. As we see here that here you have Christ as king in Zion. Showing us that he authorizes his ministers in this case. To labor for the good of this church. We can't miss, friend, the point that we'll come back to in just a moment. That this is the work of a king and his kingdom. This is the work of a king setting order and authority in a realm that is entirely his. And that brings us to our theme then this evening. And that is, here in this text, Christ, we're told, has vested his ministers with spiritual authority. I want us to focus most of all, friend, first of all, on the source of this authority. I want you to notice, friend, that this is the work of the king that you have in Matthew 16. A greater than Caesar is here. A greater ruler of a greater house is here. And he's setting things in order in Matthew 16. Telling us something about this kingdom that he's establishing that's very much different from Rome. 
Very much different from the kingdom of darkness. And friend, what you can't miss here is that this is a demonstration of the absolute sovereignty of Christ then over his house. He doesn't stand like Moses as a servant in the household of God. He stands as a son. Zion's only king and head. He alone could commission. He alone can authorize those who are at work in the church. And so, friend, I want you to notice here that this is, in Matthew 16, a picture of what you have all throughout the scriptures. In Psalm 2, the Lord says very pointedly, I set my king upon my holy hill Zion. The hill Zion there representing the church of God. There is one king, one throne, and it's Christ. So says the apostle, Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the body of the church. Twice we're given to it, given it through the apostle Paul. The point is very, very simple. Zion has one king. Authority flows only from him. And beloved, even as we take up what we did last Lord's Day evening in Ephesians 4, you see that this kind of authority is actually exercised by Christ, powerfully even in his session in heaven, as the ascended Christ. I mean, I mean, friend, if you look back at Ephesians 4, you have these words. When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. The obvious question that follows that is, well, what gifts did he give? Well, it takes us to the text we took up last evening, last Lord's Day evening. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. What this teaches us, friend, as we look at the source of this authority, is that all of these things actively flow from the ascended Christ. Christ's kingdom, all of the authority found therein is derived, then, neither from the members of this kingdom. It's not derived from the ministers who are authorized in this kingdom. And it doesn't derive from magistrates in the civil sphere. It comes only through Zion's only king and head. He alone has the right to confer these things. He alone has the right and he alone can send those whom he would commission and call. And friend, what does that mean on a practical level? Well friend, first of all, I want you to note here that Ambitious and usurping civil rulers are just that, usurpers. For one to claim that they are king and head of the church of Jesus Christ in any sense, friend, it is a usurping of Christ's prerogative, a prerogative that belongs only to him. Whether they say that in word or whether they say that by their actions, it is usurpation. But secondly, friend, we can't miss either. What does this mean then for those who are the ministers of Christ? What if they go wayward? What if they're deviant? Well then, friend, you need to look at them as they are ambassadors who are waging rebellion against the one who's commissioned them. They are rebels in a kingdom which they have been called to serve for the king's interest. They're not just wayward individuals. They are rebellious ambassadors. And then what then does that say about those who are members of the church of Christ who go wayward? Who sin quite willingly and quite freely. Will not allow rebuke. Will not urge repentance for themselves or others. Well friend again, they're not just individuals of a different mind. They are rebels of the king. You see friend, what we're immediately confronted with here in the exercise of authority we have in Matthew 16, is the fact that this is Christ's kingdom. 
Christ's kingdom, which he holds absolute prerogative in. And so it's our calling to recognize that prerogative in all things. In whatever station or capacity we find ourselves in, in the church of Christ, our primary concern, always in the exercise of authority, always in activity, is to recognize Christ's sovereignty and prerogative. And friend, that's something worthy to die for. Worthy to die that only Christ would be acknowledged as king in his church. Now friend, if that's the source of authority, that this is through Christ, we need to ask the question, well, what is the subject of authority? We have it here in verse 19. Now as we think about authority in the church, we can think about the keys given generally to the church of Christ, the visible church of Christ in one sense, but, but as we're thinking about the administration of discipline, which is our primary view this evening, the primary view takes us to the idea that the keys are actually vested in individuals called by Christ. And so we learn from here, as we look at just this verse, verse 19, that Christ has conferred authority to ministers in his church. But I want to push this for just a moment uh, this evening. We need to recognize that in the 19th verse, Peter does not represent himself only. He represents, of course, himself and also all of the apostles. But as we look through the scriptures, what we find here is that what is said to Peter in verse 19 is actually something that is said later on in the scriptures of all of those who are ordinary officers in the church of Christ. I'm drawing down on the distinction. The ordinary and extraordinary officers called to serve the church. The apostleship, of course, was an extraordinary office. But as we go through the scriptures, what we have in verse 19 is also given to those who are ordinary ministers, ministers and elders in the church. I want you to see this just for a moment, friend. Uh, Peter here, as he represents the apostles and also representing ordinary elders, there's a parallel passage in Matthew 18. Just turn the page over with me if you would. You see here that there is a standing law in the church given. Matthew 18, I'm thinking uh, thinking here, starting at verse 17. We're dealing, of course, with the offending brother. Now the obligation, first of all, is if there is an offense among those who profess Christ, our obligation is to go to those people, uh, first of all, and to confront them with their sin. But if that doesn't pass, well then what happens next? Well, the 17th verse tells us that they're to tell it unto the church. And note then, friend, as you see this, if he neglects to hear the church, there's a solemn pronouncement made. Let him be unto thee as an heathen man, And a publican. Now friend, that's the standing law. The standing law for the church of Christ for Matthew 18 and following is that there is a disciplinary aspect that belongs to the church that if this action does not really incite repentance, a pronouncement is made. And that pronouncement is that he is really excised from the body. He's counted as a heathen man and a publican. But I draw your attention to this friend because of the verse that comes comes next. Note the parallel with Matthew 16. Verse 18 of Matthew 18 reads this. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The standing law of the church is this. That in disciplinary matters, the church, here representing the elders of the church, they are to deal with these things. And in dealing with these things, in the pronouncement, in verse 18 we're told, it is a kind of binding on earth and binding in heaven. 
Now, if you go back to our text, Matthew 16, 19, you have the very same language. The things that are given to Peter, the keys here of the kingdom, are followed with the words, Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, friend, that standing law in the church is something that runs right throughout the New Testament, that has that thing subjoined to it. I want you to notice, friend, how the apostle describes this. He says, first of all, whenever Paul comes to the church at Corinth, he says there is a failure, an abject failure in the church if you can't do what Matthew 18 commands you to do. He, he writes, is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. Well then, friend, I want you to note this. The apostle goes on to say, I have judged already as though I were present to deliver such an one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved by the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what's, what's Paul saying? He's saying, I am doing this for you, not because it's required of an apostle. I'm doing this for you because your elders have failed to do so. You see, in this case, friend, he is functioning, and Rutherford says this, I think, very helpfully, he functions not so much as an apostle, but as an elder. And that shouldn't surprise him, of course, should it? Peter describes himself as an elder. Peter writes in his epistle, he says that he, he exhorts the elders that are among them, and then he describes himself as one who also is an elder. Now, friend, the point that we're driving here is very basic. It's just this, that even the ordinary ministers of the gospel have this thing in view, this idea that they hold the keys of the kingdom. And so, friend, we can't miss that extraordinary and ordinary officers of the church are those who are in view. Rutherford writes this, he says, There may be a church of Christians and a mystical church before they have a ministry. But they are not a governing church with the power of the keys, so long as they lack officers and stewards who only have ordinary warrant of Christ to use the keys. My friend, I'm stressing this point just for a brief, uh, to make a brief point. These officers function as ambassadors. They do not function as kings. They function as those who have been commissioned to particular work, but they are not kings in the church. Which means then, friend, if they fail to observe the law of Christ in their ruling, friend, their rulings are not binding, and they're not to be received as from Christ. Because they require the sanction of the king to really be ratified. That's the point of this text. This is why when we speak about authority in the church, we speak about ministerial rather than magisterial authority. Ministerial authority in the sense that it flows from Christ, and these men are merely instruments. But friend, of the instrument is faulty. It's not a Christ. That brings us thirdly and finally then to the spirituality of these keys. Again, if you look at our text, Matthew 16, 19, we're told here that the keys to which the ordinary ministers and extraordinary ministers of the church have been given are the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And so, friend, immediately we're told that this is not like the Roman Empire. That this is not like a civil realm. This is something entirely different. And so, friend, as we embark on this discussion, it's important for us to understand that, yes, this is spiritual in character, but, but it's also important for me to tell you that this is real authority. This is real authority. I, I don't want to quote to you too often this evening, but allow me to quote Bannerman on this point, because I think he's helpful. Bannerman writes, There is a double error to be avoided. It is an error to make church power not a reality, but a name only. 
such that it shall carry with it no divine authority and convey no divine blessing. It is no less an error to make it a name, not a name only, but such a reality that it shall become a power inconsistent with its own essentially spiritual character, independent of Christ, at variance with his word, and, incom- and, incom- and incompatible with the liberties of his people. In other words, friend, what Bannerman is saying is, as we embark on this discussion of the authority that is in view in Matthew 16, 19, we stand on a razor's edge. We need to recognize that this is a real power that is conferred. But friend, it's not so that this power can be exercised rightly as inconsistent with the liberties of Christ's people, inconsistent with the word of Christ, inconsistent with the spiritual character of its own constitution. We stand then on this razor's edge. And so briefly this evening, as we look at these keys, we need to keep that in mind. The word of God is holding on to us a reality. And it's important that we understand that the word of God needs to define for us that reality. There is a character to these keys that the word of God presents. When we speak of the keys of the kingdom, we speak of two different kinds. The word of God brings us to us in two different ways. There is the key of doctrine and the key of discipline. Others divide them further, but for our purposes this evening, this division is fine enough. First of all, there is that key of knowledge or teaching. I want you to notice, friend, that this is supposed to be exercised by the church. The apostle writes to Timothy, he says, thus, he is to charge some that they teach no other doctrine. He is to charge some, not to suggest, but to charge as one possessed of authority in matters of doctrine. Again, he writes to Timothy, he says, hold fast the form of sound words. Not just the words or the ideas themselves, but the form. And that's important in the moments to come. Which thou hast heard of me in faith and in love, which is in Christ Jesus. That brings then, of course, the apostle to write in 2 Timothy 1.13 to say, Speak the same things, that there be no divisions among you, but be perfectly joined together and of the same mind and the same judgment. Friend, when we think about the key of doctrine and the key of knowledge in this case, what we understand here is that Christ is saying that the church is supposed to be well guarded in her doctrine. In fact, the text that I just read to you show you even the need for creeds. We're not just to hold to the same ideas, but even to the form of sound words. We're to be of the same mind. And friend, that means then that those who would say, my creed is my Bible. Friend, they run into a problem when an Arian begins to use the Bible. You see, there is actually a real ministerial authority that Christ has given to the church, not to create doctrine. This is not the magisterium of the Roman church, but simply to recognize what the scriptures already teach. Their authority is purely ministerial and things doctrinal. Purely ministerial, not magisterial. But that second key is that of discipline. And that brings us to the text that we read in Hebrews 13. You remember here what the apostle says. He says, remember them which have rule over you, which have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. And so you see there that the apostle joins their ruling with their teaching. The two go together. But then I want you to notice what he says in verse 17, the part of the text we didn't read. He says, Obey them that have rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. He's already mentioned that there's a kind of ruling that pertains to doctrine, to knowledge. But he also comes to this idea that there's also a ruling that involves actually the whole character of one's life. And then the apostle solemnly adds this, that those who are entrusted with that care must give an account. 
You see, in 1 Timothy 5.17, you have the same kind of idea. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in word and in doctrine. There is a ruling both in doctrine and a ruling in discipline. But that brings us to the question of extent. If that's the character, if it pertains both to doctrine and discipline, what is the extent of this authority? As we said before, friend, this really pertains to the visible church. I want to show this to you, friend. In Luke 11:42, the keys are mentioned again, but in a context that, you, that might surprise you. Christ deals in that text not with disciples, but with Pharisees. And note what he says. He says, Woe unto you, lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. Know what, the, know what Christ is saying here. These Pharisees, these lawyers, they had a key of knowledge. And yet, friend, in their failure to use it, in their dereliction, there were real consequences that came. And that was that they did not enter themselves, and that those who were entering in, they hindered. Now the question, of course, is, friend, does this mean that these men actually had the ability to unlock the spiritual condition of a soul? Of course not. These Pharisees themselves couldn't unlock their own spiritual bondage. Does this mean that these men possessed a key to somehow change spiritual realities themselves by their own exercise of authority? Of course not. But what does it mean? They had been entrusted as members of the church to preach the word of God. And in failing to exercise that friend, they failed to exercise the authority that they had been given. The same thing with the key of doctrine. It pertains, as we said before, to the church visible. Now, what then in the language of heaven and the loosing and binding? Well, friend, the point is, in this whole text, is that all of these things, this authority to rule in the visible church, flows from Christ. It doesn't mean that these men now become kings. It doesn't mean that these men now become, as it were, autocrats in the kingdom or church of God. It means that they were solemnly set apart by the Lord to do the Lord's work. And so as we close, friend, just briefly, what this survey of authority shows us is that Christ has established a visible kingdom that really has ambassadors who are called to be doing the work of Christ. But that's just it. Uh, Friend, this is the point that we so often and so seldom miss. If I take you back to Caesarea Philippi, I think it perhaps becomes a bit clearer. What is the church of Christ? What are its ruling members supposed to look like? They're not supposed to look like Romans. They're not supposed to look like the Herods. These are men who rule for Christ, in Christ's heritage, and for Christ's sake. The authority that they possess, as I've said it several times this evening, is ministerial. They are to be shepherds feeding the flock of Christ. That is the sense in which they're authorized. Well then, beloved, what does it mean to be part of this kingdom? To be part of a particular visible church of Christ that is faithful. That has men who see themselves functioning for Christ's sake and for the good of God's people. Friend, you're not under their care. The care and the good that you receive from their hand, you're supposed to understand, flows from Christ. I read that passage in Ezekiel 34 for a that very basic reason. Ezekiel 34, you have the Lord comparing those who were the civil rulers in Ezekiel's day 
with the kind of care that the Lord expected for those who would rule over his people. And he says they were utterly derelict. And the Lord would hold them accountable for their dereliction. And then the Lord goes on to say, I will be their shepherd. Beloved, this is what you and I need to pray for. All of us stand under the authority, under authority, minister, elder, session, and member, under some authority in the church of Jesus Christ. Our prayer should be that more and more it becomes clear that we are under Christ's authority. Not man's usurpation, not wayward ambassadors, but really under Christ. That should be the thing that pervades our prayers, especially as we come, of course, to elder elections. But it's something, of course, that should pervade our prayers daily. That more and more we would know Christ's tender, shepherding care in this place. Because he promises that as those who are duly called and who seek to be faithful and only look to Christ for that sufficiency... Friend, he promises that it will be Christ who tends to his flock. The exhortation from this text, friend, is so very basic. And it's perhaps not the one you might expect. The exhortation from this text is not to look to a man or to a body of men. The exhortation from this text is simply to submit ourselves to Christ. Minister, member, all, all in between. Submit ourselves to a Christ who is greater than Caesar, because we stand in a kingdom greater than Rome, a kingdom of light and not of darkness. Amen.